Hello. Welcome to today's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Session. My name is Annette Bechtold, and I am One Digital Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance. Today, I'm joined by Samantha Molliver, Managing Director of Compliance Consulting at One Digital. Before we jump in, on behalf of the 2,000 plus employees of One Digital, I want, to, I want you to know how much we really appreciate the time and energy you are investing with us today. These are challenging times for all of us, and we know your time's at a premium. Our goal today is to give you a good feel for the congressional administrative areas of focus, understand what actions we might see before and after the election, and solicit your help in moving the ball forward on some of the areas that could help your, help employers most. So with that, um, I'd like to introduce Samantha, who's going to ta- uh, take us through the agenda for today. Thanks, Annette. So today we're going to cover a variety of topics that generally fall into four areas. So first we'll talk about the legislative activity. So here we're referring to Congress, such as the House of Representatives and the Senate. So what new things are happening there? We'll talk about the status of a potential continuing resolution, go over any current legislative activity. So what bills are being discussed, brought to the floor. And then we'll finally go over kind of a brief overview of the status of any Coronavirus Relief Act legislation. Next, we'll move into kind of a judicial perspective. So what's happening in the federal courts? So this will include an update on the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, um, healthcare case update. So this is referring to the ACA, whether it's a constitutional or not, or the portions of it can be severable. Then we'll move into a federal court case regarding ACA cost-sharing reduction payments. And then finally discuss a court case out of the Southern District of New York um, that vacated portions of the Department of Labor's regulations implementing the Family First Coronavirus Response Act um, to Paid Leave Act. So that's the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act and the expansion to FMLA. Then we will discuss the latest with regards to the administration or regulatory bodies are thinking of this kind of, you think of the three branches of government, the executive branch. So this will include the executive orders and then the DOL's response to that Southern District of New York court case about the FFCRA regulations. And then finally, we'll end our discussion with advocacy, kind of the agenda, what you guys can do to get your voice heard and how you can help kind of move the ball forward. So with that, I'll turn it over to Annette. Thanks, Samantha. So as we look into the legislative activity, we'll start on the kind of government funding status. So we'll talk a little bit about the continuing resolution, and then I'll take you into the current legislative activity. Um, When we look at the uh, continuing resolution, so each year, the House and the Senate have to pass 12 different spending bills to keep the necessary funds coming into the government to operate. The 12 areas are like agriculture, defense, energy, homeland, security, et cetera. So these these 12 broad areas. And without a new spending bill, and as you can see, the fiscal year runs from October 1st to September 30th. So without a new spending bill, federal funding is, is set to expire on the 30th. So what that means is if the House and Senate don't pass a new spending bill by September 30th, the government could shut down. So absent any other sort of action by Congress, there's basically no money to operate the government. So in 
Um, so what they often do is if they can't come to an agreement or they don't get something passed by September 30th, they use what's called a continuing resolution that extends the current funding rules forward and creates basically a new due date to pass a spending bill. So this gives them a bunch more time to come to agreement on things and really sit down and, and put some thought into it, especially in years like this where they've been distracted or focused in other areas. So again, if that CR isn't passed by September 30th, portions of the government will shut down. And that how common are these continuing resolutions? Is this like a new thing or does it happen often? So uh, it's it's great that you're you're asking me about be, that because the last time a budget was passed without having to do use these con- continuing resolutions was 1996. In <laughs> fact, um, in fact, in 2007, 2011, and 2013, they used continuing resolutions the entire year and never ever passed a new spending bill. So most of the time, these CRs. Um, are like 60 days or 90 days that gives them sort of plenty of time to come up and pass something new. But yeah, it is really common. It is, it's more expected than, than not. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know they're here to kind of prevent the government shutdown. So what would happen if they didn't get one passed? So if they don't pass it and the government shuts down, certain it's only certain areas that are affected and ones that aren't. So in this first one, um, the areas that wouldn't be affected, people will still get their Social Security checks, unemployment still goes on, Medicare payments happen, the veterans will still receive benefits, and basically interest payments on the national debt continue. What what the areas that are affected, the things that, you know, uh, there are some areas that have to report, but they uh, they may or may not have funding. Um, active military, air traffic controllers, federal law enforcement, other exempt personnel. But they, you know, uh, bills, uh, until the bills pass, they might not get paid, but these first responders still have to report. Um, so all other areas basically are not operating. So when you think about most, you know, most areas, that's the problem. So where we're, we are today is the fact that they haven't even talked about it, right? So they are nowhere near, uh, none of the 12 spend, spending bills for this fiscal tw- 2021 has become a become law, has been voted on, meaning the entire uh, government would basically need to operate on autopilot with, you know, this current year's funding. And and really, and, and no, it's no criticism, it's just because they've been focused on the coronavirus stuff. Uh, obviously, this has taken up the, the time. Now, recently, um, last week in some discussions, Speaker Pelosi, she she said, absolutely, we've got to come to an agreement. I feel really certain that we're going to. I think that it's not in anybody's interest for government to be shut down. It is to be avoided at all costs, she said. Now, she and Steve Mnuchin, who is the Secretary of Treasury, they informally agreed last week to pursue a continuing resolution, and they agree that it should be free of any controversial policy to fund the federal government passed September 30th. So basically nothing that people could um, disagree on. Let's just get the funding moved forward and create this stopgap measure. So that's what we can probably expect to see. You know, conceivably, um, you know, that postponement, it it could be until election, after election, um, and then... uh, 
it would be likely to that everybody will try to make it after election because then they can figure out then is it more um, advantageous to whatever party uh, is in power in both Congress, you know, both chambers of Congress as well as the White House um, to wait until January when the new regime takes office or, you know, and then just work on the the actual budgets then. So I think a lot of things will be up in the air, but I think we'll see this um, solution. Yeah, I think my next question was just going to be how long do they generally last for? Is it kind of a 30 days, 60 days, or do they can they set the date as to when they'll it'll expire? Yeah, sometimes sometimes that's a good question. Sometimes it is like, oh, for 60 days, and it's exactly like that. Um, we'll do it for 30 more days. But it can really vary based upon, you know, what's going on at the time. So because we have all this stuff going on around the pandemic, it's uh, and the election, and it's an election year, it's very likely that it'll be a particular date in time. It might even be inaug- after inauguration. So we'll see um, what they can agree to. And again, it's going to be them agreeing that this is the right amount of time to continue it for before they look at it again. And it's not to say that they won't say, hey, let's do it until November 4th, a day after the election, and then look at it again and move it another time. So you can have multiple continuing resolutions as well. Um, So let's kind of look at the government response we're kind of looking. We've seen a number of legislative actions over this last six months in response to the coronavirus. So I just want to take a quick recap of these events. So in March 6th, we we saw that legislation provided funding to authorities to fight the outbreak. Uh, A lot of it was for vaccine research. And then on the 13th of March, the president declared this national emergency, which started affecting lots of people. the virus did, but also uh, by declaring a national emergency, it put a lot of other things into motion that uh, that happen, whether it's funding or whether it's um, other services that happen. So by declaring this national emergency, a lot of other things happened. And then Congress got um, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act passed shortly thereafter, you know, within a week to uh, help people with this emergency paid sick leave, expanded FMLA coverage for people um, that are impacted by COVID-19. And then on the 27th, the um, president signed that the congressional bill, the CARES Act, that was that $2 trillion bill that provided um, Amer- for American workers, families and businesses, gave tax relief, expanded the unemployment, all of the things that we're, we're experiencing and we're finishing out now. Um, the Paycheck Protection Program was all part of that as well. And that was something that employers, uh, many, many employers took advantage of. And so much so that by April 24th, um, funds were running low and Congress appropriated new funds for that as well in another $484 billion stimulus um, package. And so that really provided some additional funding. So on the heels of that, the House kind of quickly looked to respond to some other needs saying, okay, here's how the money's played out. There's still more needs. There's still things that happen. So they quickly passed this $3.4 trillion bill, uh, this HR 6800, which is called the HEROES Act. It was designed really to respond to more types of things about the outbreak and how it's impacted the economy, public health, the state and local governments, individuals and businesses, and kind of it was this broad package. So 
stopping there, let's look at where are we now with this bill. So it did pass the House, but in order to become law, it's got to pass through the Senate and the president has to sign it. So in May, they passed this bill. And here's where we kind of are today. So um, right now, both of the chambers are trying to come to terms with what assistance the country needs next, taking into consideration both what do people need, but also what's the long-term impact of compiling more debt on the country and the citizens. So they're trying to balance this. So the very next action uh, that Congress took was this introduction of, you know, they introduced the health, economic, and I think it's Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act, or the HEROES Act, which is the one way I just talked about that passed, right? It responding to all those things, this $3.4 trillion that we talked about. Now, since it passed in May, because the, the, the Senate was not all that keen on taking another $3.4 trillion on, what they did was they uh, have kind of lowered that amount to um, $2.2 trillion. So they've trimmed that back some. In addition, then the Senate came out with their own series of bills. So it's not a singular bill, but a series of bills that together address all these individual um, components that um, a, a majority of which are covered in the HEROES Act, but not all. And so they focused on very particular parts, created separate bills rather than a single action. Now, just generally, when you create a single bill that has lots and lots of stuff in it, there's a much greater likelihood that somebody's not going to like some portion of it, and then you don't have enough backing, enough votes for that bill to pass because there's too many things involved that somebody could uh, be upset with one component, and then the whole thing doesn't go. So the Senate was kind of trying to combat that by uh, issuing a number of different bills that together kind of create uh, a similar type package, but that should somebody have a problem with one part, at least other things get implemented. So we saw that uh, series come out. Now, they have not been able to agree on which is the right thing. So just recently, the Senate just passed, uh, just um introduced what they say is this skinny down version. So they're their latest action is this bill, uh, Senate Bill 178, which doesn't have a good name to share with you. So, um, but they actually did a preliminary vote. Now, what what they voted on in the process um, when they introduce a bill, there's lots of discussion and different sides can say, well, we like it, but we want to add some amendments or we don't like this. And then they have to discuss every amendment. Everybody has to agree on everything. And this conversation can go on for a very long time. And there's really no limit. The rules of the House uh, won't dictate that limitation until it actually goes to the floor for a vote. Same thing in the Senate. So what they have to do is come up with this, um, uh, what they want to do to limit that is say, okay, can we just all agree that we're, we're done talking about it so we can go to the floor? And that's, that's, uh, termed as cloture. So when they take this vote on cloture, what they're saying is, okay, we do we all agree or do, do two thirds of us agree? In this case, it's 60, per, 60 votes have to agree in the Senate. So not just a simple majority, but 60 people have to say, yes, we agree 
that um, we're done talking and it can go to the floor. And so that's invoking cloture. So they had this cloture vote. And what happened was um, they did not get the 60 votes. So it's not going to the floor for vote. But what they did get was a simple majority. So what they understood was that, hmm, maybe the bill could pass or whatever. Um, but there's still work to be done. So they wanted to, they want to vote, they took the vote more to understand um, how to compromise and figure out how to work on these remaining differences. So um, the, uh, so, uh, you know, there's still work between the two chambers to kind of reconcile all of this. And so that's kind of where this sits. Now, the other two areas, there's two other areas that they're focused on, because really the pandemic's kind of taken over everything. But the surprise billing piece um, the, is also very big. Now, this is also very big at the state level as well. So under surprise billing, um, both the Trump administration and the lawmakers understand and agree that there shouldn't be surprise bills. So a surprise bill is when you uh, you have an emergency situation and you don't go to a network, network hospital because it's an emergency. They take you to the closest hospital, not in your network. So you would have to pay higher out-of-pocket costs because it's outside of the network. What they say is the patient shouldn't have to be responsible for that in an emergency situation. The second time a it could be we could uh, consider a uh, bill a surprise bill is you do everything right. You go to a network doctor, network hospital, and and you. But when you go into the hospital, some of the people who, whether it's attending physicians at the hospital, radiologists, pathologists, anesthesiologists, all those people that work on your case or they help you while you're in the hospital may not be part of your network, but you don't get to choose them. So it's this involuntary physicians and providers that are treating you that are outside of the network. Here, again, they all agree that patients shouldn't be responsible for that. I don't get to pick who, who gives me my anesthesia, so, but I did pick a network hospital, so that's out of my control. So they all agree that for emergency and these involuntary um, treatment, by, involuntary treatment by a non-network, that shouldn't be the patient's responsibility. So um, there are a couple bills out there. You'll see there's this HR 5800, which is to ban the surprise billing. That's still in committee right now. Um, we also have um, the Ways and Ways and Means, who have um, marked up a different a different bill of 5826 um, and. The, this is the consumer protections against surprise medical bills. So while everybody agrees about um, the patient shouldn't be responsible, the issue is how do you resolve what the provider is charging and what the insurance company or company is willing to pay? And so here's what the impasse is. There's two different methodologies out there. One says, hey, let's just create a benchmark for if it's this kind of surgery, this is what an anesthesia gets paid in this geographic area, and we think this is a fair price. And so there's basically this expectation, everybody knows what that would be. There's another one, that, there's the other school of thought that, hey, there should be an arbitration process where by the provider and the insurance company submit what they think they should get paid and a an, an independent third party should be employed to look at it and make a decision. Um, so those are the two that, so it's really this funding piece that is the, the, um, 
where they can't agree is how do you reconcile those costs between those two groups of people. So again, patients shouldn't be responsible, but what happens to them to the actual compensation on it? And then the last piece is prescription drug reform. And, um, you know, the Trump administration and lawmakers both, you know, are really united behind the broad goal of lowering drug prices, but they really differ on those de- details too. A drug pricing, the House and Senate took kind of different p- approaches. The House passed Bill HR3 last year, and that was to create some fair price negotiation program and protect Medicare from a lot of these uh, vast increases in out-of-pocket costs. And the bill... Um, um, then the Senate um, had um, an approved uh, bill 2543 last year that would cap prescription drug prices at inflation. So again, there are these various um, different pieces, negotiation and drug pricing kind of slowed earlier this year, but it's um, due to the pandemic. So um, I'm not sure that we'll see anything, but it still is of focus and we could see it come back in maybe some sort of end of year package. Um, if we, I, I did put together and you'll have in the slide deck that you will receive um, after this is over and we'll kind of explain at the end how that works. I put together some comparison of these different coronavirus bills that are being discussed, just because this is kind of out there. Everybody keeps talking about what's the next amount of money. So I want to just kind of show you what's here for you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but you'll have this comparison. So you'll see for different categories. So if we look at this first one, we've got unemployment benefits. You'll see this first bill that the, that the House passed that this was this big, big $3.4 trillion package. And you'll see how much they're saying and what, you know, they're saying, let's extend this all the way through the end of January, kind of what we're doing today, the same thing. The initial Senate package, one of the bills in there talked about uh, renewing maybe only $200 per week and ending the program at the end of the year. And then this new skinny package that the Senate just voted on last week to say, hey, are we done talking about this? Can we go? uh, Do we think this will be something we could produce back to the House for them to agree on? Um, They're saying, well, maybe just $300 um, that will extend unemployment for the extra extra funding from federal government through December 27th. So you can kind of see how these different bills compare. So you'll see it here for unemployment, um, the stimulus checks, this new bill by the Senate doesn't have any new stimulus checks. The other two do have stimulus checks. Um, As you look, there's funding for state and local government. On the childcare side, there are some things, something really interesting that we're gonna be watching here is the carryover of FSA dollars. We all know that our flexible spending accounts and people who use them, it's a use it or lose it rule. If you don't use it by the end of the year, then uh, you know you lose that dollars. Now we do, do you know there is the small, you know, two and a half month carryover and a couple of provisions that were added, but this would allow it to be carried over for the entire calendar year of 2021. And there's a lot of talk here and in other places of some of these bills. So we may see something like that actually um, come forward before the end of the year. Now, um, you can kind of see here, this is all about the PPP loans, which uh, these are the paycheck protection loans. I know this is important to you all as well. Um, And so you can see what the the scope of either using um, 
uh, extending the PPP loans, kind of recalibrating some of the dollars that haven't been used and or um, having a round two. So you can see what's, what's being proposed here. And remember, these are all the proposals and nothing's been decided yet, but you can kind of see how those vary. I've also given you a whole bunch of different healthcare, you know, there, there's all different things on healthcare spending. There's been a lot of talk, talk about this COBRA subsidization. Should the government subsidize people who are taking COBRA for longer periods or have longer time to elect COBRA? And you can see the HEROES Act included 100% reimbursement for people who are electing COBRA. Neither of the other solutions have something like that. So that'll be another place that we'll be watching. Um, a couple of other things here. There's, um, I've included some things for you to look at from a business side. There are some business tax uh, pieces or tax relief included in some of the bills, as well as some other tax breaks and also some tax increases. So you can kind of see how those play out for you and your business. Um, the last kind of couple of places I, I looked at, only the HEROES Act had some additional paid leave components in it. And then, but then they also have, there's also all of these other categories, whether it's education, housing, hazard pay, whatever. Um, there's all these other different pieces. So again, just a useful tool. If, you, if they're talking about something you want to kind of refer to this bill or that bill and kind of keep them straight, want to give you some comparison, but you can kind of see how far apart some of these thought processes are. And of course, that's what lends itself to not getting to a decision much more quickly. But again, it's a really important thing, you know, helping people figuring out what the long-term impact to the American population of adding more to the debt will be. It's got to be repaid at some point. How's that going to happen? How does that impact people? So this is a tough thing that that Congress has to kind of reconcile. Now, do we... Do, I think that something's going to happen before election. I think it is fairly unlikely that they're going to come to some agreement, although maybe a couple of these things might be drawn out as a one time uh, or as one item that gets some extended funding. But um, it'll be something to watch. But I think it's unlikely we'll see a huge them agree on a huge package, considering there's only 14 days left before election for Congress to be in session. So I'm not sure that they're going to be able to come to um, grips within a 14 day period. But, you know, I could be wrong. Um, the last piece, um, we do have an update. I've been talking to you a lot about over the past few years about this issue of COBRA not being creditable coverage. So as workers continue to work past the age of 65, there's arisen some areas where employer law and Medicare don't gel. And so when an individual works past 65 and then voluntarily terminates or reduces their hours, they're eligible to continue their benefits on the employer plan. And you are obligated to provide them with that option to elect COBRA or not. Now, COBRA applies to employers who have 20 or more full and part-time employees on, a tip, on typical business days during the preceding calendar year. So Medicare uh, requires all individuals, on the other hand, to enroll when they're first eligible or they get late enrollee 
penalties in the form of higher premiums, usually for their entire lifetime. So unless they qualify for some special enrollment, like some special dispensation about why they're enrolling late. So special enrollment period gives that individual a brand new enrollment window that defines what timely enrollment is so that they don't get these penalties. And then if they enroll in the new window, they'd be considered enrolling on time, won't incur higher premiums that are associated with being this late enrollee. So this was really to design to avoid, avoid adverse selection when somebody enrolls only when somebody's sick or needing most care, et cetera. So when an employee goes from employer coverage directly to Medicare, there's no issue because Medicare recognizes group health coverage as creditable coverage and creates a special enrollment period when an employer ends, ends when employer coverage ends. Unfortunately, Medicare does not recognize COBRA as creditable or as group health care. So it only says, oh, if you're coming right off the group plan to Medicare, that's a special enrollment window, but not if you're coming from COBRA. So an individual going from COBRA coverage to Medicare doesn't receive a new enrollment window. Um, And if you don't sign up for Part B when you're first eligible, your premium goes up 10% for each 12-month period you could have had Part B, but you didn't sign up. So if somebody takes COBRA for the full 18 months, at a minimum, they're going to be paying a 10% higher premium for Medicare for life. So, um, you know, the longer you go without Part B, then the higher that penalty is. And the same applies to Part A. Part A is not necessarily premium-free for everybody. There are people who do have to buy Part A. And um, if you don't buy it when you're first eligible, the same thing will happen. Your monthly premium goes up 10%. Now, that, although, is capped. So um, it's only for, you know, a, a certain number of years. But that's rare. Most people get free. So to help um, employers, um, the individuals, the DLL, uh, did publish a new model notice um, that actually helps, you know, your new COBRA notice. It basically ha- addresses kind of this interaction with Medicare, highlighting that, you know, if they're eligible for both, both COBRA and Medicare um, and they elect co- COBRA, it could impact their Medicare premiums and out-of-pocket costs later. So we've been working on this issue for a very, very long time. Um, It takes a long time through many different congressional sessions to get traction. Um, But we are working on H.R. 2564, which is the Medicare Enrollment Protection Act. And I am happy to say that this is a bill that basically eliminates this and now consider will consider COBRA as creditable coverage. So the great news is we have some progress on this bill. So just last week, it did pass out of the health health committee and it, it now goes um, forward. It may have one more committee and then could go to the floor. So it does have bipartisan support. So people, people are really excited. And the chance of passage I'm seeing is about 88% if it comes to the floor. So there's a good chance that this could be something that in this session could get fixed. Maybe they could agree on this thing since there is backing for both. And so those are kind of the things that we're seeing on the, on the legislative side at this current time. So now that we've taken a look at, at the congressional 
developments. Uh, we'll move over to another branch of government. And so we'll take a look at the ju judicial activity. And so this is going to encompass the courts, right? Uh, again, we're going to look at this Supreme Court challenge that has been going on for a long time on the ACA. And then uh, this failure to make cost sharing payments. Uh, Samantha, let's uh, talk a little bit about that. And then the uh, Families First Coronavirus Response Act and the court case that has impacted that. I'm going to take you through uh, just a little bit of a review on this ACA issue that's existed since the ACA was first launched in. And so in 2010, when that law was passed, it contained a provision that gave, you know, giving individuals a health care choice. So either purchasing health insurance or paying to the IRS a shared responsibility payment, right, which we all call the individual mandate or the penalty that goes with that. So that mandate was written into the law to expand, you know, the health insurance risk pool to include young and healthy people um, and make sure that everybody was participating, which was also one of the requirements, uh, uh, so to speak, of the insurance carriers or making it attractive for the insurance carriers that they weren't only going to get people who were really sick, but that they would get a whole cross-section of population. And so that was built in and it was codified in this 5000A and, and B that you see there. Um, so in 2017, the, um, the well, it, there was a court case in 2012. Basically, it was challenged and saying, hey, this individual mandate, you can't force people to have insurance. That that's an overstep of the, uh, the Congress's authority, right? So you can regulate commerce, but you cannot... You know, you can't you can't violate um, an overstep by telling people they have to purchase and be a consumer. Um, so, in other words, you have to buy something, you have to buy this insurance. And so the Supreme Court case in 2012 was pretty much a landmark case. It did uphold the individual mandate um, as constitutional because they said that it it is more of a tax. It's a taxing clause. And and assessing tax and is well within congressional authority to do so. So um, a number of states, uh, 18 plaintiff states and some individuals um, filed suit and said, we don't think it's constitutional. Um, and the Trump administration joined those, uh, those states um, and did not defend the constitution and defend the law. Um, so the, so basically, um, the court upheld it and said, no, we think it's constitutional. It was okay for, um, Congress to be, to write this in and it's, it's well within their rights because it's a tax. Well, you know, fast forward to, to 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act goes into play. It eliminates this tax penalty. So it basically zeroes out the dollar amount of the penalty for the individual mandate. So if you don't carry individual coverage, instead of having paying this cost sharing or this responsibility payment to the government or this tax penalty, the tax penalty now equals zero. And so... Um, so the states came back and said, hey, now that it's zero, 
it's not a tax anymore. You can't count it as a tax. So now we think the individual mandate's constitutional. And so that went to the um, the courts. And what happened was um, the Texas judge uh, had listened to this and they um, they said, you know what? Um, first of all, we'll allow, there was really nobody to defend it because the Trump administration said, well, we're not going to defend it. We're, we agree with the states bringing the action. So some, uh, about 16 Democratic controlled states, uh, plus the District of Columbia, um, their attorneys generals uh, said, you know, we'd like to defend the ACA. And so the court allowed them to do that. And then the um, it went uh, for to the U.S. Uh, federal district court, and they ruled. The district court judge said, "You know what? We agree with you. We don't. We think because it's zero, the penalty is zero, that um, you know it isn't constitutional. Because that was the only reason we found it to be constitutional, or the Supreme Court at the time found it to be constitutional, was because it was considered a tax. And if there's no monetary amount associated, it can't be considered a tax anymore. So therefore, that individual mandate provision is unconstitutional. But that uh, district court judge took it even farther and said, not only is it unconstitutional, but in looking at that provision, just the individual mandate in, in relationship to the entire ACA, we think that if you then remove it, that piece of it, um, that you can't just remove that piece of it. It impacts too many other places of the ACA. So therefore, if we rule that, you know, by ruling the, the individual mandate to be unconstitutional, the whole ACA is unconstitutional. So on the heels of that, you know, fast forward, um, obviously, you know, the House Democrats appealed that and saying, said, um, you know, that's not right. Um, there were oral arguments heard. Um, and and um, basically the arguments being, you know, the penalty, um, you know, the penalty that we talked about. So the appellate court came back um, and said, you know what? We still agree the individual mandate is no longer tax and it's not on, and therefore it's not constitutional anymore. Yeah, it's not considered constitutional. It needs to be taken out. But as far as that second piece where the lower court said, hey, if the, the individual mandate falls, the whole ACA falls, we're not so sure about that. So they remanded that piece back to the lower court and said, hey, explain this better. And um, and that's where that landed. So the latest news, if we look at it, you know, the Democratic defendants uh, basically asked the Supreme Court to listen to the case um, and said, hey, you've got to make a decision here. And so the Supreme Court came back and they agreed to hear the case um, and they heard oral arguments um, or they will hear oral arguments now, November 10th, which is a few days after um, the election. So uh, interestingly enough, will this continues on. And so um, we'll wait and see what happens there. Now, typically the Supreme Court runs from, uh, their session runs from October to June. And so typically, especially, uh, you know, meaty decisions like this, uh, they may not uh, provide a final 
decision until June of 2021. But in any case, this moves forward. And in November is when, uh, beginning of November, right after election is when they're going to start to hear oral arguments on, you know, what happens with the ACA and this constitutionality challenge going forward. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that they've decided to hear it one week after the election. So they'll have the oral arguments. And then I'm sure, as you mentioned, the actual opinion probably won't come out until June. So um, I think it'll be interesting to watch, given we don't know which party's going to go into office, you know, coming this November. And then, you know, when they actually take office in January, if things may change in the interim, you know, between before the, the opinion that comes out from the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's really a, a good thought, Samantha. Um, and, and maybe something we all can be doing, too, is is during, you know, this campaigning time and up at, uh, into the election is kind of watching what are the candidates saying about and what is Congress? Are they talking about it all? It, what are, is anybody speculating about? Um, this particular case or even concerned with it. Um, Because that's something from our perspective, you know, as as employers providing benefits and from uh, one digital, you know, as we're helping you with benefits, this could significantly change what and how we offer benefits in the future. So it'll be interesting. And I think, you know, something to stay attuned to, to keep an ear open for, you know. I agree. So moving on to All right, so, ACA cost sharing, yeah. Thanks. So I was going to talk about kind of another federal court case. This is not in the... <laughs> oh, the joys of Zoom. <laughs> well, yeah, actually that was the joys of Siri, who uh, nobody is, is intrusive. I apologize. So another kind of court case, this was not heard at the Supreme Court level, but also heard at the federal type of level. We're talking about another provision of the ACA, and this deals with Section 1402, um, which implements a plan for reducing the amount of out-of-pocket costs, um, such as deductible co-payments, co-insurance that lower income insurers um, receive under their ACA plan. So essentially you have subsidies. So this is a separate portion from the employer mandate. This kind of governs for our insured and the government. So Section 1402 places the burden of these cost sharing reduction payments or these CSRs on the government, so through HHS, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, to provide these periodic and timely payments to insurers. Um, And then the insurers are supposed to then provide these payments to eligible insured individuals based on their household income. So this program was implemented back in January 2014, and up until September 2017, the government was making their monthly CSR payments to health insurance, um, who then in turn were paying them to the eligible insured. Fast forward 2017 of October of 2017, the government stopped making these payments and since then has not been making any. Um, as a result of this, the health insurers uh, brought suit in the court of federal claims because they still had the obligation to make these payments to the eligible insured. Um, they brought this case, as I mentioned, in the Court of Federal Claims, basically seeking to hold that the government was accountable for these lost CSR payments. They sued under what's known as the Tucker Act, which allows parties to sue in this specific court, this Court of Federal Claims, to hold the government liable for this non-payment, claiming that Section 1402 is a money-mandating statute. 
The government, their argument included that HHS had no authority to make these payments in the first place because Congress had never appropriated these funds to do so. Additionally, they said that neither Section 1402 nor the Tucker Act, so just kind of a procedural argument, um, stated that they could enforce this type of claim in this specific court. And then finally claimed that the insurer carriers suffered no actual damages even in 2017 when they stopped receiving these payments because beginning in 2018, they were able to raise their premiums and obtain additional tax credits under a separate program of the ACA. So the court, after hearing these arguments, essentially rejected the government's argument and held that Section 1402 is a money mandating statute enforceable by the CFC, so that procedural requirement, and then stated that the mere lack of an appropriation does not discharge the government's liability to make these payments. Additionally, the court there found that under clear statutory language that the government had to make these payments even if the insurers were able to offset their losses through increased tax credits. In a separate court, in a different federal circuit court, there were two separate opinions that were issued that basically agreed with the Court of Federal Claims um, and stated that these health insurers, um, or basically stated that the government did in fact had this obligation to make these CSR payments. They held in that court that the cost sharing reduction reimbursement provision imposes an unambiguous obligation on the government to pay that money and that the obligation was enforceable through damages in that court of federal claims under the Tucker Act. So in sum, in summary, this decision has a major victory for our uh, health insurers because it shows that the government is liable for these non-payments and that the insurers are entitled to that full amount that they didn't receive starting in 2017. Um, there is no offset because they were able to increase those premiums. Um, you know, this is, a, is such an interesting piece because it just shows how uh, the whole insurance markets kind of intertwines. You know, the way I think about it is you talked about um, how the federal courts are like, well, or how the insurance company would have the ability, that argument, hey, well, you can make yourself whole by just raising rates. Well, you know, there's a lot to that, even though the court came back and said, well, that doesn't negate your responsibility to still have to, you know, reimburse them, federal government, you know, yep. the, the whole agreement under this ACA, and this really applies to the individual market. It was to help people who, you know, who didn't earn as much or who didn't have household income that is high, like you're saying. So if, if people, people earning less than 250% of the federal poverty line, and I think that number gets adjusted annually, but it was 250% of the federal poverty line. Not only did they get help on their premium to get coverage, but they also um, paid lower deductibles. So they could take out a, a plan that let's say had a $5,000 deductible and people who earned over 250% of the federal poverty line went and, and less than 400% got help with their premium, but people under 250 got help with their premium. And maybe based on their, their household income might only had to, had to pay 300 of that $5,000 deductible. And the insurance company basically had to make up that deductible difference on their behalf, you know? Okay. So, um, I think the interesting thing here is that even though they came back and said, you know, that that argument is that they just insurance companies are just going to raise their rates. And, and there's so much truth to that because they're going to be made whole somehow. So 
where I think about this as an employer, um, you might say, well, you know, we don't pay for the people who take individual coverage outside of us, our plans. Not necessarily the case. Um, the way that the ACA set, was set up, most states or a good chunk of states, they have one risk pool for their individual and or some states have, uh, yeah, most states have one risk pool for their individual and group, small group coverage. So basically, they throw all the premium dollars in the pot and all the dollars they're paying out in, in claim expenses. And the differential there and what they anticipate claim dollars to be is how, how they come up with what the rates are that are going to be charged for subsequent years. And that's the rates that they file. So it does have an impact definitely on, in many states, on for carriers and what premium they're going to charge in, in that small group. And, you know, who's to say how they, you know, how that they allocate their expenses or decide on, on costs going forward. So I do think it's a big impact. And if that was the deal, that should be the deal. You know what I mean? <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting. They were, you know, paying, I think, I can't remember how many months, you know. Yeah. So many months they were making these payments and then on, they just, on a, like, you know, when decided just to stop making these payments. Well, because they found that loopholes saying, hey, Congress never said, you know, Congress has to appropriate money to spend. And in the ACA, they did a bad job of documenting that, that they have the authority to give the money to actually pay that. So I think it was just a kind of maybe a kind of an error on many fronts, like, you know, from the rulemaking and from the lawmakers perspective, when they drafted, that was a, that bill was drafted very quickly yep. that they didn't probably dot all the I's and cross the T's. Now, obviously it was the intent, but yeah. So I think that's, that's one thing about rushing legislation for sure. I'd be interested to see if, you know, if this would result in any kind of credit back to individuals, you know, if they've raised their premiums now that they've received that, the CSRs back or maybe damages or whatnot, if that would have any impact going forward. I don't know. I'm not quite sure, but. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Cause the, the, yeah, I, I, I think, I think the carriers would come, the insurance carriers would probably be hard pressed to say, well, <laughs> Can we point exactly to the yeah. the lack of this, like that a direct cause and effect? Yeah. But to that point, if they did have an influx of cash or whatever, there could be some credit going forward or some better um, impact to you know future rates. Maybe yeah, that, that could possibly be. So, yeah, interesting. So moving on to another court case, this is not also not at the Supreme Court level, but this is more in the New York Federal District Court. Um, There was a decision that came out at the beginning of August, um, basically regarding the Family First Coronavirus Response Act uh, regulation. So that's dealing with the two Uh, paid sick leave laws that came out from this FFCRA. So just kind of as a background, the FFCRA was signed into law on March 18th, 2020. I know Annette had mentioned it briefly earlier. And it provides federally subsidized paid leave for some employees who can't work due to specific COVID-19 reasons. So there are six um, laid out 
qualifying related conditions related to COVID-19 that an individual can take leave. Um, so this came out in that bill and then the DOL through their administrative uh, powers drafted these regulations that basically flesh out what this law is. And so they came out with these rules, this temporary rule on April 1st, 2020. Um, and then following suit and that on April 14th, the state of New York brought suit here in the Southern District of New York, claiming that the DOL's kind of interpretation or their final rule that they came up with exceeded its authority and that certain provisions of those regulations unduly restrict paid leave. So the court agreed with them on four portions of the final rule and basically vacated them or excluded them so they don't apply here. And these were the work availability requirement, so generally, the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act um, provides leave to employees who are unable to work or telework due to taking need for leave due to one of these six events. Um, and then the expansion of FMLA similarly applies that unable to work or telework due to need to take leave to care for a child um, due to a public health emergency. Um, basically, the rule excludes employees who do not have exclude yet employees who do whose employers do not have work for them kind of this but for causation so the court looked at what the bill like the law says and then read read what the regulations had stated and found that the bill the actual text of the emergency paid sick leave act said that this work availability requirement applied only to three of the six qualifying events um, whereas the DOL's interpretation said that it applied to all six so due to this kind of ambiguity the court said that the DOL's interpretation was not reasonable, and therefore, because of that, they vacated the whole portion that there had to be this work availability requirement. The second one that they vacated was the definition of a healthcare provider. Basically, what the court said is that the DOL's interpretation or the regulations was far more expansive than what was laid out in the actual bill or the law. And the DOL, in the arguments in the actual opinion, stated or conceded that an English professor, a librarian, a cafeteria manager at a university with a medical school could all fall under this definition of a healthcare provider, and they could optionally be denied this emergency paid sick leave. So the court agreed with the state of New York, basically vacated that rule because the way that the DOL had interpreted it was looking at from an employer perspective, whereas the actual bill, the law said you need to be looking at the employee who is capable of furnishing this healthcare services. The third one that they vacated in part was this intermittent leave request. So the final rule, the regulations permit employees to take this paid sick leave or the expansion of FMLA intermittently. So in separate times, not rather than one big chunk or that two week period of time, they could take one day here and one day there. And that was only if the employer and employee agreed and it only applied to a specific subset of qualification or conditions, which generally were the ones where the individual was not sick with COVID-19 or not seeking a medical diagnosis. Um, so the court, basically what they vacated was that you needed to get um, the advance approval or the employer consent 
that was vacated. Um, they found that there was no rationale for this blanket requirement for employer consent. And then the fourth provision that they vacated was related to the requirement of documentation prior to the leave. So the regulations basically state in there that you have to, before taking the leave, provide this documentation saying why you're going to take the leave, the duration, and why it's relevant. Um, however, the actual bill itself had its own notice requirements and that only the advance documentation was required if the leave was foreseeable. Then they needed to provide notice as soon as practicable. So it wasn't this advance notice for everything. So because there was this ambiguity or there was um, strict conflict between what the bill said and what the regulation said, the court vacated um, this documentation requirement as a precondition to the leave. So uh, this is what came out in August. We were waiting uh, and to, to see what the DOL would do, they could have come back with a, an appeal. Um, but what they actually did come back with in response, which came out last Friday, was a revision to the temporary rule. Basically, they updated to address these four concerns from the district court. So now we've talked about kind of the the judicial side. Let's move on to the administrative and regulatory kind of activity. So this section here is a little bit different from what we just talked about, which was the legislative and the judicial branches. Here, this is the executive branch of government. So this will include the president, so those executive orders, and then the regulatory agencies. So those will include the Health and Human Services, or HHS, the Department of Treasury, um, and the Department of Labor, the DOL. Those are the main big ones that um, govern employee benefits. So as opposed to the two other topics we talked about, the legislative branch, which is Congress that makes the law and the judicial branch, which interprets and evaluates the law, here the executive law carries, or the executive branch carries out the laws that are drafted by Congress. So this is where we'll be talking about the DOL's response to the Southern District of New York's decision. And that, I'll turn it over to Annette. Oh, sorry, that's me, I forgot. <laughs> So in response to the New York Federal District Court's decision, um, the DOL came out with its revisions and clarifications to the temporary rule. And these were effective on September 16th. So the DOL said in its opinion or in its rule that it carefully examined the court's opinion and reevaluated the portions of the rule that the court found invalid or that they vacated. Um, and under its statutory authority under its rulemaking authority um, decided to invoke its exemption from the usual requirements. Generally, when you propose a rule, there's this uh, public notice option and people can comment. Um, and I, you know, they invoke their exemption basically because we are in the middle of a national emergency and it's a pandemic right now. So they avoided this notice and comment portion of rulemaking, um, but delayed the rules effective date. This came out last Friday, as I mentioned. So it's effective. It was effective on the 16th. Um, basically updating its interpretation based on the District Court of New York's um, decision. So the temporary rule reaffirms the work availability requirement, stating that the leave can only be taken if the employee has work from which to take leave. Um, and the DOL said that this requirement applies to all qualifying reasons, all six reasons that fall under the paid sick leave or the expanded FMLA. The second one that they talked about was reaffirming what they stated before with regards to intermittent leave. So basically disagreeing with the 
district court saying they're reaffirming what they originally wrote and stated that intermittent leave is permitted by the regulations and employees must obtain their employer's approval um, when they want to take intermittent leave, saying that it was consistent with the long-standing principles and governing rules related to FMLA. And generally that's because you're going to be taking intermittent leave when you fall under that, I think it's the fifth reason, you're taking leave because your child no longer, you know, their place of care, or their school is closed. Um, it kind of deals, they talked a lot in the opinion about the hybrid type of scenarios a lot of schools are implementing where individuals are in, Kids are going to school, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or three days out of the week. Those other two days, you would have to take intermittent leave because you're not going to take the full two weeks. You only need to take leave for those two days when they're not in school but doing more virtual schooling. They also adjusted the definition for healthcare provider. So they revised it. They took note of what the district court had said. Um, realizing it was quite expansive um, and they've changed it kind of to be a two-prong thing. So it applies only to employees that meet the definition under the FMLA and then also employees who are employed to provide diagnostic services, preventative services, treatment services, or other services that are integrated with and necessary to the provision of patient care, which if not provided would adversely impact patient care. So they've narrowed the scope uh, a bit to avoid kind of this vast group of people who could be optionally excluded from taking this leave. And then finally, they updated the notice, the clarification on what information needed to be provided to support the leave request. They clarified that the information that the employees need to give their employees um, needed to be provided as soon as practicable, and that um, employees may re be required to provide notice in advance. So they're trying to, they went back to essentially back to what the law said or the bill says, um, providing it as soon as practicable, not what before was saying you had to provide it before taking the leave. Notably, the DOL's website that contains numerous FAQs on the FFCRA has been updated to reflect these changes. Um, and if you haven't seen them out there yet, I do recommend checking out that website. It is very useful. I use it all the time and they are updating it. Um, uh, yes, it provides great resource for kind of defining how they would interpret this law. So it seems like um, most of this, uh, you know, really just makes it more workable. Um, yes, I think, you know, what they're trying to do with the but for causation, I was, I can't quite recall, but I know in the opinion, in the rule they talked about you have they have other safety nets or other provisions mm -hmm. for when an individual can't work so if the workers come or if they have to take unemployment really what they're looking at is you know you can't work because you have one of these COVID 19s not because your employer doesn't have work for you it's really that safety net for employees and also encouraging individuals who may be sick or who have symptoms not to go into the workplace and spread COVID-19. Yeah. Well, and I think that uh, probably, you know, uh, in all the um, questions and uh, folks that we've been helping, I think we see that quite, uh, you know, that was a lot of the confusion was, you know, um, this but for thing, you know, like my yeah. employer has work for me or they don't have work for me, you know, and what is the real intent there? So, you know, so I think that the, it's good that there's more 
um, stability. And I do love seeing the maybe a little bit more leniency on, on the documentation piece or, you know what I mean? On the support, the relief requests. Yes. Not so it's not so everybody, every situation doesn't fit into a box. And I think a lot of uh, HR folks are struggling with that a little bit. So, yep. yeah. And I mean, like most of this, I mean, other than the emergency paid sick leave, the expansion of FMLA just essentially amended FMLA to include this new event that this only event is paid. All the other laws or regulations that apply to FMLA don't change. So when the DOL was looking at it and making their arguments, they're saying, hey, we're already following longstanding principles or understanding of FMLA. We're not trying to diverge from it to make it more confusing. So as long as we're complying generally with FMLA, you know, that's what they're trying to say here. This still is applicable. We're not making a whole new version of FMLA for this one type of leave. Yeah. Good point. Good point. I I think the other uh, piece in this area that we wanted to talk about really when we're talking about the administrative branch, um, you know, the executive branch, the administration and regulatory bodies um, is really all all the activities surrounding Uh, surrounding um, executive orders, right? So it's important to really to understand what an executive order is and what it can do. So the president's executive order privilege is something that's authorized by the constitution. It allows the president to issue federal directives to the agencies that are governed by the branch. So Samantha told talked about the branch, the the, uh, regulatory bodies that report up to the administration through the president. are those kind of rulemaking bodies and in the benefits side that would be to us, Treasury, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Labor, uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is also part of HHS. Those are the ones that we watch that that kind of govern employee benefits law um, and our regulation, I should say. And so um, what the these executive orders by the president are, they don't have force of law, but they direct the agencies who report to the executive branch on how to carry out or enforce the law, the laws that Congress um, sets and how to manage resources. So the executive orders often result in maybe new or revised regulations from these affected offices. So um, is this typical? Yes. has every president, uh, does every president use this executive order uh, privilege? Absolutely. So equate it to like your CEO saying, hey, to your operations department, this is what I want you guys to focus on. It's the same type of thing here. So it's very usual, very customary. You look at, you know, um, for a given year, it, you see whether uh, if you look back to Clinton or Bush or um, Obama, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 220 to 260 executive orders over their, you know, terms, you know, and they've had some longer terms as well. So um, it isn't unusual to see executive orders. This is pretty um noteworthy. Uh, This is, I think there's 182 that Trump has issued, maybe a a little bit higher frequency, but of course, uh, also a lot of them have to do with the pandemic. But let's look at some of these. Um, Since taking office, you know, the president kind of set his sights on improving healthcare, healthcare outcomes. And so I'm just going to highlight some of the ones because we've had a barrage of them actually just recently in this third quarter. And I just want to kind of give you an idea of the types of things he's asking these 
regulatory bodies to kind of look at and provide. So the first, um, the first one we see at, uh, is this um, lowering prices uh, for patients, um, eliminating kickbacks to middlemen. And so this is, there's a lot of prescription drugs here. So this is lowering prescription drug prices. And basically, um, the goal here is to provide the discounts, because um, there are discounts uh, that pharmaceutical manufacturers provide, that pharmacy benefit managers provide, either um, somewhere in, the, in that whole process of distributing the drugs, um, uh, working with uh, formularies and which uh, drugs are being promoted or not. Um, actually, health plan sponsors, any of you with, uh, with self-funded plans, work with pharmacy benefit manager, you have a formulary, you know, certain drugs get better benefits or have lower copays than others. All of that stuff, those are discounts that are happening during the process and not at the time of purchase. And so this particular uh, um, executive order really wants to focus on getting the discounts to the consumers at the at the at the point of sale. So when they're purchasing their drugs, because the behaviors of people will it will incent better behaviors. They're not seeing all these other discounts in between, and so they don't have any incentive to act in a certain way. And so it's not really lowering it. A lot of those uh, discounts don't get to the actual consumer. And so that's what this is focused on. And so basically asking the um, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services to um, look to make some rules about this, and how, especially with regard to Medicare Part D, okay, and how these discounts happen and can we get them to the point of co consumer? What can they do within the confines of how the laws work? The next one that came out also same time was increasing drug importation. And so this um, provides lower prices to, again, all, all on this lower price piece. It, the purpose was to lower the cost, the high cost uh, that Americans pay because they pay higher than any other country per capita for prescription drugs. And so it instructs the secretary, secretary of HHS to take action to kind of expand safe access to lower cost imported drugs. A lot of times uh, Americans are paying more money for the same drug made and manufactured in the same place um, as people in other countries. So for some reason, Americans are paying more of the cost or a higher cost, even though it's the exact same drug produced in the same place. So they're looking at ways to import and give choice and low and create more competition and lower that um, without sacrificing, and this is important that's in there, without sacrificing people's safety and making sure that the drugs um, are safe. And it does confine uh, the importation to Canada in this particular um, Directive. Now, this next executive order again on affordable life saving medications, this is all about insulin and epinephrine. And so it's the policy, it was the policy according to the executive order to enable Americans with access to affordable insulin and injectable epinephrine through commercial insurance or federal programs like Medicare and Medicaid to get these uh, from federally qualified health centers at a price that aligns with the cost at which 
they're being acquired. So basically that there's no markup on these. And so that's, it's asking HHS secretary again to make sure that there's grants involved, et cetera, that, that um, can be used to assist uh, individuals with the, with these costs so that they're not paying high, they're paying reasonable costs or no cost. Um, and then uh, another one came out on, in August about improving rural and telehealth access. So as part of the pandemic, telehealth was expanded to Medicare patients. So Medicare prohibits normally use of telehealth and you have to be in person with the doctor. And that was done to protect and make sure that seniors weren't taken advantage of, they were getting the care they needed. But with the pandemic and them being a higher risk group, that was not a safe place. So telehealth was expanded as part of the CARES Act to, and, and the FFCRA to be able to um, cover those folks. And so this is uh, asking the, the secretary to issue or announce within 30 days some new model here to kind of look at rural health and telehealth and see what they could do to expand or, or maintain this expansion for a longer period of time. The next executive order that came out was combating health emergencies and strengthening national security. And basically, this particular one is meant to address the fact that during the pandemic, we didn't have the stockpiles we needed within the U.S. to take care of the patients um, immediately. So a lot of countermeasures had to be put into place on the fly rather than um, it being proactive. We were very much in a reactive state. And so this um, instructs the different departments um, and the FDA and some of the other um, agencies to make sure that there is policy going forward that um, prevents us from having to be in a reactive state should there be another pandemic or, you know, um, emergency situation, that there is a plan and it's executed religiously where, you know, there is um, these particular items are produced here in the U.S., they're stockpiled and at the ready should we need them. And so it, that, you know, applies to essential medicines as well as, you know, other things like PPE and some of the things that we looked at that were not beholden to anybody else or any other country to, to um, provide that and that we can react much more quickly and that we, you know, have a have a plan in place for that. And then the last one that just came out on Sunday um, was the last in this lowering of drug prices. And in this one, this uh, particular one is really to bring parity to the prices. Again, this is kind of more, uh, it's more strongly looking at Medicare and the price of drugs that are being charged up to Americans versus other developed countries. And it creates, um, it, it, it's saying that Medicare should not have to pay more for a drug than other developed countries have to pay. Um, and so it creates this test situation or ask the secretary to, to kind of take steps to create this test model to understand how do we pay no more than any other 
what whatever the most favored nation price is that American that Medicare as an agency doesn't pay more than that and that does that help people adhere to their medications better um, because the costs are lower and mitigate maybe some poor clinical outcomes and increased expenditures and so it's asking them to look at that so that's kind of the the activity we've seen on that front the last piece, and I know we're a little bit over in our time here, but the last piece I just want to talk about is really this advocacy piece. So, you know, as Samantha said early on, what do we do about this? You know, how do we as citizens take action or do some type of things? So on our side, we belong to a number of different uh, organizations, but some uh, some that are focused high, very specifically on employee benefits. And so as a result, um, individuals and at one digital uh, in addition to Samantha and myself, are active in working with organizations and working with lawmakers and regulatory bodies. And some of the things that we continue to push it are and um, our advocates for would be preserving employer-sponsored coverage. So a couple of things I want to just talk about. Universal health care, universal coverage. We have a lot of terms out there, and I want to define them just very briefly. Universal health care is this belief, and, I, and this is something obviously we agree with. We agree with universal health care which is that all people should have access to good health care. That's the, and I think most people agree with that. The difference between universal health care and universal coverage is that universal coverage talks about one method, one way of financing the cost of health care. So one is about the actual care itself. The other is about how we're going to pay for it. So people can pay for health care in a whole lot of different ways. They can save money themselves or they can utilize investments to finance, you know, future health care cause. The most prevalent way that people pay for it is through health insurance, though. So universal, universal coverage really basically states that everybody should have to have insurance to pay as the methodology to pay for it. Now, there's a couple of different ways. Like right now, 175 million people are covered by, or thereabouts are covered by employer health insurance plans, others through um, entitlement programs like Medicare or Medicaid, et cetera. And then there's people in the individual market. And then some people self-fund and they don't have coverage. Some people don't need to buy insurance to help them pay. They have money to pay and they choose to use their own funds in a different fashion. So there's a lot of different ways. Um, So there are a couple of things coming forward um, that we want to make sure that we've focus on, and especially with regard to the upcoming election, this universal coverage idea comes in many forms, and there's a lot of ideas about how to do that. Single payer is one of them, whereby there would be one single payer that pays for this health coverage for everybody. And so um, this uh, single payer system means everybody has the exact same coverage. Now, it comes in a lot of shapes, a lot of different ideas, many variations, just like countries around the world who have single payer, they're not a one size fits all. They all work differently. And so we have a lot of different proposals there, Medicare for all, Medicare buy-in, a Medicaid buy-in, the public option. We're going to spend time in our special session on October 1st and go through some of these more specifically. But for us, we want to make sure that that we focus on the healthcare piece, that people have access and they have choice um, so they can get the coverage they need or get the care that they need and that they have the choice of providers or um, how that 
that healthcare is delivered to them. And that's our, that's the first thing. And so our concern on single payer, as we look at all these different platforms and options is that we do, we don't want to forego people's um, opportunity to choose the doctor that they want to get the care that they need when they want it. Um, and that none of these programs do that. And some of them have, um, have the propensity to curtail some of those things for people. So there's this trade-off. Um, so we want to, we want to look at that and we spend a lot of time talking about that and looking at those options. We also want people to continue to enjoy the tax benefits of using, um, uh, coverage or paying for that coverage through their employer. So that's this employer exclusion, right? Um, The monies that you spend on your employees are tax-free to them. We want that to stay that way for their health health insurance coverage and their contributions as well. So we want to be an advocate for that. Also in the surprise billing piece, we've been working on that, trying to promote this benchmarking because we feel that's a little bit lower. I described that earlier. So we are an advocate there, making sure that patients aren't responsible for those costs that they have no control over and that there's a fair methodology and it doesn't actually inflate the costs overall to everyone. Then on this lowering prescription drug, uh, we're for choice, transparency. People need to know what the costs of things are in in order to make good decisions. Uh, So again, increasing this choice, accessibility, and this accountability to the whole healthcare industry. From an ACA reform standpoint, we know you all love, I say that facetiously, employer reporting that came with the ACA. And there's a lot of time and money that goes into it for you. That, And we feel there are better ways and we have um, been instrumental in working with our groups to introduce some legislation that would take a lot of that onerous reporting off of you on a retrospective basis and by um, allowing a voluntary program to prospectively tell each year say, here's who I offer my coverage to, here's how it works, call me if you have a problem, departments, rather than having to report on everybody. Um, Also, defining full time. We want to improve HSA savings reforms, expanding contributions. One, you can make contributions, like if you're Medicare eligible, you can't make contributions into your HSA now. We want to see that increase also for telehealth, also for direct primary care and some of these other types of things. And then the Medicare fixes, we talked about the COBRA's creditable coverage. We want to continue to push that. And also in the Medicare observation status, another place where the Medicare law, you know, that came into into being just hasn't been updated. So people who go in for, uh, you know, in order to have skilled nursing as a Medicare paid uh, benefit, you have to come from a three-day inpatient hospital stay. Well, a lot of people go in for what's called observation now. And this observation status does not constitute inpatient care. So people go right from observation to a skilled nursing facility, and then it's not covered by Medicare. So that's another kind of gap that we're trying to work on and we've been working on. So how do you make a difference? Um, Meet with your congressman. That's the big thing. Now, this seems daunting for most people, but look at their website, understand what their areas of interests are and what committees they sit on federally. Um, That's really important. You can see where they're working, where they're not. Um, All of their websites have um, 
the ability to write to them, tell them how you feel, tell them some stories. You can go, you can call up your congressman's office and meet with them if you happen to be traveling to DC or whether you're in the home or local district. When they're home, you call them up, make an appointment, you can go talk to them about whatever you want. They need to hear from you. That's your number one. You're their constituents. And funny, we always think, oh, they have so many things, but you are the most important person. And the hearing stories from you is the most impactful. Um, and off, you'd offer to work on things with them. Um, you know, if they're working on certain issues, sometimes they might ask you for help or your, or your opinion on certain things if you start to build a relationship with them like anything else. Now, for most people, it seems really daunting to do that. Um, you can send letters. You can send them through the website and, you know, provide input. Um, so one of the things that, that uh, we've done through our relationship with uh, the National Association of Health Underwriters is this act. Um, this um, access to Operation Shout. So when you get the slides, you'll be able to cl click on this Operation Shout link. And what it does is it'll bring you to this first issues section and you can pick a topic. So there'll be healthcare issues in here, whether the, it's this COBRA's creditable coverage or employer reporting or things like that. You'll be able to click on that. And, and then, and you can kind of see over on the, in the right-hand box, it'll tell you about the issue, what we kind of think. And then um, you'll have an option on some of them, you'll have this write tell option. Maybe I just want to tell them a story that how this has impacted me. Here's what I'm paying for employer reporting, or, you know, this is how how negatively this has impacted me. I like you to do something about it, right? Um, or you can actually write to them. When you do, when you click on this write button uh, in this last box on the right, you'll get uh, what does this issue mean? But um, it will ask you when you're in here to fill in your name and address, etc. Because what it's going to do is match up where you live to who your congressmen are, your so your representatives and your senators, and it will automatically pre-fill a letter that you can modify to each one of your congressmen and you can submit and send it to everybody at once. It's very quick to do to say, hey, we'd like your help on this particular bill to help uh, alleviate some problems on employer reporting or some of these issues we talked about today. So that would be a great way for you to help. Um, so uh, that that pretty much uh, sums it up. Hopefully that this sheds some light on the latest developments. So um, we've got a couple questions we can take, and I know if, uh, if you can hang on for a little bit, we'll just take a few questions, and anybody we don't get to will be able to provide some response to you. So the first one, um, Sam, that I'm seeing is, what's the chance of being able to get more PPP loan money? So, so yeah, that's, um, again, it's going to be whether or not um, they can come to some agreement on uh, any of those three bills we that are in, that we looked at, whether the Heroes Act or, you know, somewhere in between, if they can come up with something that they agree on, and like maybe like back in April where they just said, well, we'll give more PPP loans, maybe they will do a, some sort of smaller round too. Um, but it remains to be seen. I think with it coming into election, I, I'm just not sure we're going to see a lot, but it is it's possible. We'll just have to watch. Uh, okay. Um, here, uh, here's another one. Um, has the emergency paid sick leave been extended? Uh, so no, not with the recent rule. They didn't extend it, and so the its effective date 
was April 1st until December 31st, 2020. So it expires at the end of this year. And I know that when I was watching you go through your slides, I believe the HEROES Act, they actually did seek to extend it by a year um, until the end of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, but that has not been passed. And I don't think any late, latest coronavirus relief packages or anything has an expansion or extension on that. So nothing yet. Okay. And then um, what? Oh, here's one about the COBRA, that COBRA is creditable coverage. Um, so should we tell our employees over age 65 not to take COBRA? Um, so COBRA, you're going to have to offer it. I mean, you're just similarly situated. I would be concerned of not offering it to them. Also the, I believe the updated model COBRA election notices and the initial general notice do address the kind of coordination of Medicare and as being credible coverage in COBRA. Um, so you should still offer COBRA. And also, I'm not sure if it would impact the Medicare secondary payer rules. That's something else you wanna be aware of, but just from a general benefit standpoint, you should be still offering it, even though they may want to elect Medicare. Yeah, I think that's a good point that it's in the, the new model notices kind of address that. And so um, I do like um, the idea that you can use the model notice since it's in there yeah. and highlight that to folks and say, hey, look, pay special attention if you're Medicare age about how that might interact with future Medicare premium as you make your decision. And that's kind of talked about in these notices. So it might be something you could highlight, you know? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't the, there could possibly be a choice where they've elected both. They're going to elect COBRA and then I, maybe they elect yeah. Maybe they've already met their deductible or their auto costs, you know, so they're just staying on the employer plan or maybe there's an employer subsidy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Last one. Cause I know we're way, we're quite a bit over here. Um, but hopefully it's been good information for everybody. Um, the ACA, what if the ACA is found to be unconstitutional? Um, that's such a great, uh, I think everybody worries about that. If it's found to be unconstitutional, everybody will lose their health care, pre-existing will come back, all kinds of things. Realize um, that, if that were to happen, um, there's a lot of pieces that couldn't ju can't just be turned off. I would suspect there will be rulemaking that comes out of that. So it'll go over to the regulatory bodies to say, okay, what is the transition timeline to enact certain things? So for example, um, the carriers have to file their rates a year ahead of time, and they can only be established one time per year. So the rates have already been filed for 2021. So it would, I would think they'd be hard pressed to change how rating works, how the uh, all of the essential benefits and plan designs and everything. So it would seem that it would probably um, make sense farther into the future and that they may have, they may give some prospective dates for changes that may happen to those provisions. So that's. Yeah, I definitely think there'll be some transitional type of period. And then I, I do think that, you know, a lot of different states have their own laws that may rest off of the ACA. So that would be impacted as well. Oh yeah, that's a great point. So I think, you know, that is a huge, uh, a huge undertaking. Um, it's not like a, it's not like a light switch that you're just going to turn on and off, you know. It so is a massive body of law that, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you're right. I mean, it's a good point that it's the states as well. So, um, 
So thanks everybody. I appreciate that. Thanks for turning for tuning in today. As a reminder, uh, connect with your one digital consultant who can help you put some of what you heard today in action. Uh, please remember that all attendees are going to receive an email with the video replay of this session as well as slides we've shared today. Each uh, employer advisory session is also available as a podcast. And more information about how to access these is on our website at www.onedigital.com. Please also visit our COVID-19 advisory hub for more information on the pandemic. It is a, that's also available at onedigital.com slash coronavirus. So stay healthy and stay connected with your family, friends, and coworkers. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.